0: Doctor's Kitchen Recipes, health, lifestyle
1: To my mind, this is the, the big unknown We can get people well Of the people we get well Some stay well for a very long time But the majority of the depression creeps back Over three months, six months Particularly people who've been depressed for decades And the, the real challenge now is how to keep those people well And one option is Well, we just give them another trip every six months But that is really, really difficult because, of course, the drugs are legal. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast.
0: The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition. And I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Professor David Nutt on the podcast, an expert on drugs and how they work on the brain. He trained as a psychiatrist and for almost 50 years. His research has focused on new drug treatments for anxiety, depression, and addiction. Today, we're gonna be diving into the world of psychedelics. We're talking LSD, psilocybin, and ketamine. We discuss the history of psychedelics and why they were banned in the first place, despite having a relatively good safety profile, how these drugs work, and the mechanism on the brain. The default mode network, also known as DMN, and the latest research looking at its efficacy and role in a multitude of conditions. You can check out his latest book, Psychedelics, that I highly, highly recommend, and try his revolutionary alternative to alcohol that we mentioned on the podcast called Sentier Spirits that you can find online. I'm really, really excited for you to hear this podcast. It's rare that Professor David Nutt has the time to dedicate a whole hour in his packed schedule. So, to sit down with him and have a full-length conversation was an absolute pleasure. So please do enjoy my conversation with Professor Nutt today. You can watch this on the YouTube channel. Just type in Doctor's Kitchen on YouTube. And remember, you can sign up to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter where you also give you the seasonal Sundays newsletter on Sundays where... We do a deep dive into an ingredient that's seasonal, how to cook it, what the history of it is, what the potential benefits are, as well as mindfully curated content to help you have a healthier, happier week. On to my podcast with Professor David Knapp. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Professor Nutt, we're going to start off with psychedelics. How can psychedelics help treat stress, anxiety and depression?
1: Well, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said, I'm not sure they can. But since we've started using them to treat disorders like, like, like um, depression and OCD, a lot of people with PTSD have come up to me the vets, and said, I've been to Spain or Holland or even the Amazon to get um, psychedelic treatment for my anxiety disorders, and they've done very well. So the last couple of years, I've been reframing what I think is going on in the brain in relation to this broader range of disorders. And uh, I think we're coming up with an idea that all chronic mental illnesses have one thing in common, which is that people get thought loops, Mm. which they struggle to break out of. So if it's PTSD, if it's trauma, they keep remembering the trauma. If it's depression, they, keep, they have thought loops about how worthless and useless they are. If it's OCD, they keep having thought loops about cleanliness. And those thought loops occur at a very high level in the brain. And that's where psychedelics work. Psychedelics work in the cortex to disrupt those very high-level cortical processes and they're very, that sense, they're very different from traditional antidepressants, which work deeper in the brain, in the limbic system, the emotional centers. And uh, I think the straight answer to your question is we can break down what we call maladaptive circuits of thinking with a psychedelic. And that, that allows people to escape from what's been bugging them. But also there's one other clever thing about psychedelics is that they also promote neuro, they also promote neuroplasticity. Mm. So that when you get a new insight. For instance, if you're a depressed person who suddenly under the psychedelic, you suddenly realize, I'm not a bad person. It's not my f- it wasn't my fault that my parents divorced. You can reframe your perspective on yourself and then you can use that neuroplasticity to lay down whole new ways of thinking about yourself and the future. And they can be very enduring. Mm. And just on that
0: subject of neuroplasticity whilst we're there, can you break down exactly what we mean by neuroplasticity? Because I think people have heard the terminology and they have a, a loose idea of rewiring the brain. But how do we actually sense you know, that the, the, these psychedelics are having an impact on it?
1: Yeah. So there are two comp- complementary perspectives on this. So what we mean when we talk about neuroplasticity is that the brain changes I mean, and of course, the brain changes all the time. You know, the, com- the five minute conversation we've just had have changed lots of parts of my brain in terms of you know, even every memory that I've laid down in this conversation is due to neuroplasticity. So, and at, a, at a sort of molecular cellular level, that is due to two things that's due to uh, synapses between neurons becoming either enhanced in strength or more of them developing. So when people measure neuroplasticity in the brain, they're usually looking at the number of synapses uh, in a particular circuit, because we think that the more more synapses you have, the stronger the, the circuit, all right? But the question is, how do you measure that in humans? You can't chop bits of the brain out and count synapses. One thing we are trying to do is use a, a, a particular imaging technique with a particular tracer it's called positron emission tomography and it uses a tracer which binds to uh, one of the proteins that are in synapses and and we've shown that in in disorders where there's synaptic loss like like dementia there's less of this tracer binding so we're now doing a study where we're seeing if we can increase the binding by giving a psychedelic and we're using both ketamine and then dmt so that would be the sort of first proof in humans that you can actually get more synapses after a psychedelic trip. But the other thing we've done, and in some ways the most compelling, is that we have looked at the flexibility of the brain after psychedelics. And we've done this in patients, and we've done it in healthy volunteers. And, and we, you can very readily see it. In, if you put a healthy person, a normal person in a scanner, give them a psychedelic, the brain becomes much more connected. And that, I think, is one of the crucial factors in why people get uh, important insights when they take psychedelics. But that increased connectivity persists. Now, with, with our patient studies, and we've only really done this currently in, in, in depression, we're doing it in other disorders, but we've done two depression studies. And in the, in the first one, we, we scanned people's brains one day after the trip because you couldn't really ethically put a depressed person in a scanner and hope to get a therapeutic benefit of the psychedelic. I mean, you might get the benefit, but we, you know, we couldn't justify that. So we scanned them a day after. And in the second study, we scanned them three weeks after. And then we looked at the ability of their brains to change their way of thinking, to switch between different thinking states. And in both states, both the day after and three weeks after, the depressed brain was more flexible. And, and this is really remarkable, the more flexible it was, the better their outcome was, at six months, so this is almost like a fingerprint yeah. or a, a measure of the changes in the brain which actually predict outcome in depression. That's very unusual.
0: How were you able to challenge their flexibility in that particular study? What 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 uh, uh, measure so did you use? The measure we
1: use is we we look at you look at the whole brain. Now, in let me just give you a little bit of, of the backstory. There are multiple networks in the brain depending on how sophisticated your analysis is and how many measures you've got. But I mean, simply, I mean, there are some very obvious ones we can talk about. You know, there's there's a visual system, there's a hearing system, there's a speech system, there's the motor system, there's a feeling system, and there's a thinking system. And there are about three different thinking systems. There's a a self-reflective system, there's a system which gets you out there doing things, uh, you know, analysing things. And then there's an, another thinking system, which is about the relevance of what's out there to you. So say, let's say there are tens, 10 big networks in the brain. We can measure them and see how rapidly the brain moves between different ones. So obviously now I'm talking, my, my, my auditory network is very active and my word production network is really, really active. And, I, and my visual app network is very active because I'm looking at you and seeing if you're agreeing with me, which is great. Uh, and other networks aren't so active. Um, so we can see how f- readily the brain flips between different networks. And after psychedelics, we can see they flip, it flips more readily. The, we see these transitions. They're, they're more of the transitions, basically. Okay. And that's really important because the, the killer problem in depression is that people, one of the networks, which we call the default mode network, the network which encodes your sense of self, your value, your self-worth, that becomes over to itself. And it doesn't connect to the rest of the world. So rather than evaluate your thoughts by, say, what other people are doing or saying or written about you, you get locked into this internal uh, rumination, this loop of negative thought. We can break that down. We see that psychedelics break it down and it stays less tightly connected afterwards.
0: Yeah. I want to go into the default mode network in a bit more detail, totally. but perhaps before we do that, we can step back slightly and actually talk about what we mean by a psychedelic, uh, yes. what psychedelics we typically talk about from the research point of view, LSD and mm. DMT, etc. Uh, and how those are different from other exogenous molecules that mm. we might use. You know, how does it differ from a nootropic, for example? Right.
1: Okay, so when we talk about psychedelics, most people are talking about what we call the serotonergic psychedelics. So these are drugs which, uh, like LSD, like DMT, like psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, uh, DMT, of course, is an ayahuasca. They target a particular serotonin receptor in the brain called the serotonin 5 H 2 a receptor. That receptor is really, it's probably the most interesting receptor in the brain in some ways, because it's, it's, for reasons we don't fully understand, it's massively expressed in the very highest parts of our brain, the parts of our brain which make us human. Mm. And, and that's, of course, why psychedelics, by perturbing those receptors, would change the very highest functions of our brain. So people think differently on psychedelics, but they can still move their arms and legs because it doesn't affect those, you know, those look, look more... Longer evolved parts of the brain, so, but there are other kinds of psychedelics, and then there are ones like salvia, which produce uh, again a rather a similarly disorganized state of brain function, but which which is subjectively really quite different and often very unpleasant. And then there's Amanita muscaris which is the the it's the gabergic psychedelic, which is we we believe is the is the mushroom that Alice took to get bigger and smaller oh, because it okay. it produces distortions of of size. And then, of course, there's ketamine. Now, ketamine is pharmacologically very different from DMT or or psilocybin, but it produces, again, perturbations of brain function, which can liberate people from disorders like depression and addiction. Uh, And uh, currently, of course, in the UK, it's the only psychedelic we can actually use because it's the only one that's a medicine. So so a lot of our clinical work is using ketamine at present, but, but we're hoping in time, that the, the regulations will change and we'll be able to get hold of psilocybin and uh, maybe DMT. Hmm.
0: And how do these differ from other molecules like nootropics? Yes, yeah, so
1: nootropics, so nootropics are drugs which promote brain uh, metabolism and brain growth, but they do it in a general way. Whereas psychedelics particularly target one receptor in that are localized on a very special set of cells. And, and let me just explain why these cells are really important. The human brain has more computing power than all the computers on Earth put together. Why is that? Because your brain is made up of about 100 billion neurons, and each neuron is a mini-computer.
2: Mm.
1: And you think, you know, 100 billion times 100 billion is an awful lot of computing power. Now, what makes them, those individual computers work as a whole are a particular set of neurons which are located in the cortex... They're called the layer five pyramidal cells, and they pull it all together. Okay. So they make all the communications in your brain, and uh, and that is you know why we are so clever, and you know we've got you know, the enormous capacities for everything that humans have. Psychedelics particularly target those those neurons, and we don't know why. We don't know why those neurons have got a lot of the 2A receptors. I think it's got something to do with the ability to think differently. Mm-hmm. I think. They, those, we know that those receptors are involved in neuroplasticity. We know that those receptors mediate the psychedelic experience. We don't exactly know why they're there, but I think you know, they, they, the fact that they're there means that even if, you, if major things happen to you, even if you're not taking a psychedelic, like, for instance, you know, you suddenly discover how to get make fire. I think the encoding of that experience, that's, that sort of light bulb moment, done something fundamental this is they will be it'll be encoded by a whole set of neurons which are, are, are controlled by those 5 hd2a receptors and if you perturb them then you change the way you think and and that's why you can break out of thinking patterns which are not necessarily very helpful and get into new ones
0: are there patterns of use across all these different types of psychedelics that we are seeing are more useful in different Scenarios of the patient's diagnosis. So, are there certain psychedelics that are more useful for treatment of refractory depression, for example, mm-hmm. or uh, generalized anxiety disorder or
1: PTSD? Yeah. It's, it's a bit too early to say, mm-hmm. uh, and, and th- there are several fundamental differences between the psychedelics, but they're more to do with the what we call the kinetics of time course. Okay. So things like DMT, we have to either smoke or inject. It has a very transient effect, maybe 10, 12 minutes. For the clinical studies we're doing with DMT, we infuse it intravenously, lasts about 20 minutes. On the other end, you've got LSD. You know, the trip can last you know, 15, 20 hours, which makes it quite hard actually to use clinically because you have to have people in hospital. So, But if you get the same level of interaction with the receptors in the brain at the same time, with any of these drugs, you do get very similar effects. So at present, it's not clear whether a particular psychedelic would have particular utility for a particular disorder. It might turn out to be relevant, but it's going to take a lot more research. You know, we're, very, we're already just starting this at present.
0: Yeah. Because of the legality issues, is ketamine the most studied in terms of uh, the, the psychedelics that we have researched on today for all those different conditions, or are we seeing actually that in terms of the weight of evidence for the other ones, it's, it's almost uh, on par?
1: So there's a paradox here. Ketamine is far and away the most used, but it is the least studied. Really? Uh, and, and the reason for that is, I suppose, because it's, it's kind of less interesting, because it's not, you know, we... The questions that we are asking about ketamine now are being asked because we have done the psychedelic research. Ah,
0: okay. the
1: ketamine researchers didn't really—they weren't. I mean, ketamine was developed as an anesthetic, you know, knocks your brain out. People aren't really interested in what's going on in the brain when you're unconscious because mm. you're unconscious. So it's, it's only recently that ketamine's been used in a, a, a sub-anesthetic uh, uh, level in order to produce, for instance, an antidepressant effect, and the, and those is. Sort of not been so intellectually interesting. The psychedelic research that has really driven the uh, the explosion of of, of neuroscience studies in this field, and now we're desperately keen for the ketamine community to catch up. And in fact, we're beginning to do our own ketamine work because they don't seem to be doing it. So so we're gonna we're gonna have to do it for them. I think.
0: Is there a bit of nervousness because ketamine, I guess, is one of those drugs where it can be abused. Uh, I mean, I, I remember seeing in the gum clinic I used to work in um, uh, Brighton, we had uh, uh, ketamine users and they would come in with all different sorts of symptoms and bladder cystitis and quite, quite severe oh, yeah. issues of uh, Ketamine uh, dependence is
1: a, is a serious problem, mm. particularly as you pointed out in terms of, the, you know, the chronic cystitis and the need requiring sometimes people to have their bladders removed, mm. which is a horrible thing to have to do because it takes years off your life because you end up with kidney infections. But there's another side of that story as well, which is that heavy use of ketamine produces a, a kind of dementia. It produces a state of apathy and, uh, and lack of energy and lack of foresight, which is almost either like dementia or a bit like some forms of schizophrenia. And that is when ketamine is used recreationally, repeatedly. The thing about ketamine is that you get tolerance to the effect quite mm. rapidly, but you can what we call surmount that tolerance. You can overcome it by taking more. So people might start off taking um, yeah, a quarter of a gram of ketamine and after three or four months, they're taking three grams a, you know, a night. And that then really does put the pressure on the brain and the bladder. Now, in clinical practice, ketamine is rarely used more than uh, once or twice a week to start with, and then usually it's only, it's limited to once a month for for maintenance therapy. So maybe over a year, you might get 15, 20 doses. That's probably not going to cause tolerance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to cause tolerance, and it's probably not going to cause problems. But there are situations, particularly in the U.S., where there's not much control over who's getting ketamine, where you can doctor shop. Ah. You, can, you can, in theory, just keep going on money. You can just go and see a, doctor, a different doctor a day. Yeah. And there are cases of ketamine dependence developing from the clinical use there.
0: Huh.
1: Now, psychedelics are fascinating because... Psychedelics also produce tolerance, but the tolerance is so powerful, you can't surmount it. And, and, and what's amazing? Do you know who made that discovery? No idea. Yeah, that was made by the uh, the US Army. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were terrified in the nineteen fifties that Russia was going to spray LSD over America and, in, why basically stop there are the american soldiers fighting so the americans did a lot of research on what's what's the antidote for LSD they couldn't find an antidote but they discovered if you treated your soldiers with LSD for 3 days hmm. the third day didn't work huh. so that was the plan If, if, if the war was going to break out everyone would be tripping for 2 days and then they then the Russians would spray what they like so we that that and that is a powerful safety measure we we're very confident that psychedelics cannot you know, and most people don't want to use them more than once or twice anyway. And they certainly if you keep on using them, they just stop working.
0: That's super interesting because I guess that kind of, um, I wanted to come on to this a little bit later, but the reasons as to why they were banned and they were scheduled as class A drugs is a, a bit of a mystery. If, you know, though, those are the
1: effects. It's not they... a mystery at all. Oh, it's not? Okay. It's, <laughs> like you... it's, it's absolutely explicit. Funny, I've just come back from this huge, the biggest ever psychedelic conference, uh, 12,000 people in Denver. And at that conference, I nobbled the, an, a person who works for the Drug Enforcement Agency. And I held her, I stopped her, and I said, I'm, You're going to answer this question. Because I know you're the only person in the world actually's been back to the original data, because I've had a dialogue with her before at meetings. I hope I got you now. Tell me the truth. Why were these drugs banned? And she said, Nixon, war on drugs? The harms were exaggerated. Everything was exaggerated to justify the ban, but the ban was a purely political ban. And she said, don't quote me, because I'll lose my job. But that's, the truth is, it was just Nixon. Nothing else was going on at all. It wasn't drug companies trying to stop them. It wasn't doctors. It was just Nixon, war on drugs. People were opposing the Vietnam War. They were putting up placards saying, drop acid, not bombs. And Nixon wanted to drop bombs. <laughs> he was dropping bombs. He just wanted people to vote for dropping bombs.
0: That's incredible. So it was a purely political move because they wanted to, it sounds like, manipulate the cultural movement that was moving in the direction of anti-war to pro-America and pro-war
1: in Vietnam. They wanted, as I say, the only... LSD is the only drug to be banned because it changed the way people voted. Wow. Young people were voting against war and the American way of life and the American way of politics and international diplomacy was about weapons. And, you know, and they didn't want... And they couldn't ban the anti-Vietnam War protests because people were allowed to protest, the First Amendment. But they, they could ban what they thought was the drug that was fueling it. Of course, banning LSD had zero impact on the protests, It had zero impact on the use. All the ban of LSD did, which was it sucked in all the other drugs, like psilocybin and DMT, which was seen as chemically similar... And it's just stopped research. So we've got 55 years of no research and no treatment in a failed attempt to stop the anti-Vietnam War protest. Because people don't realise in the 1960s, and and well, until very recently, until Trump, really, America controlled the UN and it controlled the WHO. So neither of those organisations would do anything that the American government didn't approve of because the American government was bankrolling them. And we did the same. We, We conceded. You know, we didn't have to make cytosimine illegal, but we just did it because America either told us to do it or incentivized us to do it.
0: We yeah, because I was going to ask you about, if that, if that happened in America, what happened in the, in the UK with regards to the same... Well, normally, research. if
1: America says do something, we, if America says jump, we say, how oh, high, sir? <laughs> it, every single component of our Misuse of Drugs Act, 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, ha, has been, until... 2016, the Psychoactive Substances Act, which we did on our own, up to that point, every single thing we have done has been done at the behest of America. And I can tell you that because I can tell you categorically, about, particularly, well, it goes back to cannabis. Cannabis was a medicine in Britain until 1971. It was medicine. The rest of the world, actually, America banned it, most of the rest of the world banned it in 1934, but we, we held out. We said, why should... Our doctors said, it's a medicine, we're going to use it. And then in 1971, America said, "Look, guys, you know you've I don't know what the deal was. No one knows, No one, well, if they know they won't tell, but the, the, we decided to ban it as a medicine because America told us to. And then of course, 20 years later, it's all over America, but we it took us another 20odd years to, to, to bring it back into medicine. So that was the first example. But more an example I was party to when I was on the Advisory Council of the misuse of Drugs was, was cat, you know, the chewable. Plant that comes yeah. from from you know from Ethiopia and uh-huh. so yeah, cat yeah. perfectly legal in Britain. The Americans banned it because they like banning things, and uh, we refused to ban it. And uh, and every the advisory council once a year met with the Foreign Office, and the Foreign Office would come in each year and say, uh, "The Americans are telling us they really don't like the fact we haven't banned Cat. It's causing big problems because they're importing it into America from Heathrow. And we would say, well, then unban it, make an important directly. <laughs> and they would get really angry. And eventually, we conceded. Eventually, I think in twenty fifteen, uh, there was a you know a private members' motion to ban cat because um, essentially, you know, America wanted it banned.
0: Wow. So a lot of these political uh, uh, movements have influenced the research around these different substances, yes. but also the
1: you know, well, the, all the drug laws are political. It's obvious because. Alcohol is more harmful than most drugs that are banned. So that's clearly a political decision, not a health decision. Yeah. And, but what, pe- what people don't realise is what you're intimating there. People think, well, does it really matter? You ban a drug. OK, so a few kids get locked up, you know, but it might deter some. So it might be, have a beneficial side. What people completely overlook is the impediment to research that the ban produces, which means that medicines, like psilocybin and NS, before they were banned... There were 140 studies of LSD and psilocybin as medicines. In the 50s and 60s. I mean, psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, was a medicine, a licensed medicine from 57 to 68. (laughs) It was a medicine. And then then they said it wasn't a medicine, because people, as I say, it changed the way people voted. You look at that database. Database. There were 1,000, 1,000 clinical papers showing the utility. Some of the very top psychiatrists in the world would do... 1,000. papers, 40,000 patients. You know, the, the safety database was overwhelming. It's very, very safe. And the outcomes were really, really rather good. Uh, and that was all denied in an attempt to... Well, when they banned it, they just denied that. They just lied about it. They said it didn't have any clinical value, even though you know, there's a 1,000 papers showing it does. Wow.
0: And looking at those 1,000 papers, if we still have access to those, what kind of efficacy were they demonstrating back then? And can you estimate, you know, if we did have those 50 years back of research on these substances, how many deaths,
1: uh, morbidity, you know, how, how much... It's the worst censorship of research in the and clinical practice in the history of the world. 55 years of denying proven medicines to the world. It, 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 it is... It is, know yeah, I mean, it's a crime against humanity. So let's I'll give you an example, a of back-of-the-envelope calculation. LSD for, LSD for alcoholism. Maybe I'll give you a bit of the backstory here. Mm-hmm. Most people do not realise that Alcoholics Anonymous was founded as a result of a psychedelic trip. Bill Wilson, chronic inebriate, 1933, Yale graduate, was being detoxified for the last time before they were going to lock him up if he carried on drinking in a, in a, in a home for incurables. He had a, he had a, he was given a, a combination, in, it is in the book, a, of a mixture of uh, scopolamine-type drugs. Uh, it was called the Belladonna Cure. He had a profound psychedelic experience when he said, I was on a mountain and a wind, not of air, but of spirit was blowing. And it came upon me that this was the God of the preachers and I was a free man. And, and, he, and that's it, he ceased to be an alcoholic then. Uh, and he campaigned and, and very successfully, he set up Alcoholics Anonymous and then he campaigned, um, when LSD became available in the 50s, he campaigned for LSD to be used to treat people with alcoholism who couldn't see the bigger picture. They couldn't get in touch with the, the spiritual being, which is what Alcoholics, the 12-step program is about. It's about achieving that kind of spiritual awareness. And because he was so, such an important person, and, and he managed to persuade the US government to do six trials of LSD in alcoholism. And it was one or two doses as part of a psychotherapy package where you try to stop people drinking. Now, 10 years ago, two Norwegians went back and got the source data, did a proper meta-analysis, and they showed that the effect size of LSD, well, just one or two trips in alcoholism, is about three times that of the best subsequent treatment for alcoholism. Three times. OK, so let's think. In those 55 years, on average, now it's about 3.5 million people a year die prematurely of alcoholism. You go back back to the 60s and 70s, maybe 2 million. So let's just estimate maybe 100 million deaths, premature deaths from alcoholism over the last 55 years. How many would have been saved by LSD? Well, I mean, very conservatively, at least ten percent. So let's say ten million lives saved. How many lives have been saved by the LSD ban? Well, probably none. But let's be generous. Let's say it deterred a few people. Let's say maybe it deterred a thousand people who might have died. I mean, no, I'm not sure a thousand people have ever died of LSD in total. But anyway, well, maybe even even if you know it saved a million lives, the equation is so much in favor of it, the treatment. And that's why I'm, i you know, why I've been protesting this for so long, because it is outrageous that a medicine should be denied to patients simply because people who were using it recreationally voted Democrat. I mean, it, yeah,
0: it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Does it's it? incredibly sad when you frame it like that, and yes. you and you think about the the number of lives and uh, who are completely made upside down with the the effects of, of alcohol, which is socially acceptable. And I guess it lends itself to the question of harms around LSD and how they were magnified. I've heard you talk, I think, earlier about, you know, uh, the, the sort of um, editorials around LSD and how it was sort of putting uh, people in society against the idea of even allowing psychedelics for research. What, what kind of harms are there associated with LSD as a specific psychedelic? Sure. And are they comparable to some of the other medications? Or are they,
1: have they yeah. Yeah, been exaggerated? Well, clearly there are harms. I mean, all drugs can harm, you know. But as I like to point out, more people in Britain every year die of water poisoning.
0: W-water? Water? Water poisoning. poisoning. If you drink,
1: drink five litres of water, you die. Uh, about seven people a year in Britain die of basically dehy- hyperhydration drinking water, huh. polydipsia, you know, about seven a year. And I, I mean, I don't know if any, a year die of... Well, we know for psilocybin, one of the, we've been campaigning actively to make psilocybin rescheduled because we know from the government's own data there might have been a death in the last 20 years. 20 years. And it's a million people a year using it. So we know these drugs are extremely untoxic mm. in overdose compared with say, something like alcohol or tobacco or or even, you know, ketamine or benzone. So, so, but there are harms. I mean, you know, there are... If, if people have got a tendency to psychosis, then it can make psychosis worse. Uh, people can have bad trips and that can be dangerous, but but even even when you even in the worst case scenario, when you look at the harms of psychedelics, when you use recreationally without any control, and compare them with the harms of other drugs, they still come out really low. And then if you then say, but if we only use them in a medical setting, they're gonna come out even lower. You know, it, it is it is it, it makes no sense to keep them controlled as a Schedule 1 drug, which means they're virtually impossible to work with. And it's not that... My my group have done that. There's a very famous paper. You've seen the graph of harms. was published in The Lancet in 2010. Just after that grant was published, a lot of people don't know this, the European Department of Justice said, we would like to give a grant to European experts to to, to see if they agree with you. Mm-hmm. And so we trained them in how to do the methodology, and then we let them go to it. And there were 30 experts from 20 countries. Big differences, you know, in some countries, like Czech Republic, Norway, a lot of crystal meth used. Other countries have different problems. They re, they did they changed every score that we had. They changed every weighting on every drug, and it came out with exactly the same. Only, only two drugs changed place, GHB and ketamine changed place. It was almost identical to what we came up with. And then more recently it's been done in Australia by Australian experts and it's been done literally just last month and published by New Zealand experts. So where, you, where experts look at drug harms, mm. alcohol is always number one because it's very commonly used and psychedelics are always right out at the bottom.
0: Yeah. I remember in the early 2000s, this is coming to me now, uh, in Camden, which for, for the listeners who are not familiar with London, uh, it's a place in North London magic mushrooms seemed to be on sale. Yes. And I don't know whether they were fake magic mushrooms. I never purchased them, obviously, but mm. were, was it legal at, that, at some point to well, actually this is have... This another
1: scandal. This is another example of how politics has driven policy. Huh. So, until 2004, in Britain, magic mushrooms were legal.
0: They were, so they were genuine they magic were. mushrooms.
1: Because, <laughs> actually... <laughs> Two good things came out in the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. Two drugs were not, two things were not banned, probably because the Americans didn't know about it. Back when it we didn't ban cannabidiol, uh-huh. because our scientists knew it wasn't psychoactive. Mm-hmm. And we didn't ban the magic mushroom. We banned psilocybin, uh-huh. so you weren't allowed to extract mushrooms, you know, the psilocybin from mushrooms, okay. but the mushrooms were legal. Okay. And, you know, no problems at all, until, as you point out, a couple of head shops in Camden started selling freeze-dried mushrooms and uh, uh, Cubensis mushrooms it came from Holland mm-hmm. where they were illegal and uh, and that incurred the wrath of the Daily Mail and and at that time the Tories were in opposition David Cameron the man who was going to come to power and rationalize the drug laws and rationalize alcohol policy who the day he was appointed the day after he was appointed head of the Tory party, changed his mind completely. He went from saying MDMA should be Class B to be saying MDMA is, you know, devil's, you know, sweat or whatever. He changed his mind instantly. It was embarrassingly bad. But anyway, he decided that he could attack the um, current um, Labour Party, was Blair was then in power at the time, on the mushrooms. So there were these daily mail mushrooms killing our kids, you know. Um, and Tony Blair being... Um, also also a rather right wing of inclination. Instead of doing what he should have done, which was go to the ACMD, which we were on, mm. and ask us to make a decision about magic mushrooms, he decided, I suppose he was, I can't remember, he was probably getting ready for the Iraq war then, I don't know, he decided to, to bring together a group of experts to decide on how to deal with mushrooms. He didn't include any, anyone who knew how to spell magic, cytosibine, magic mushrooms. Basically, it was senior police, army, and him. Now I no, I, I wasn't in the, no, basically, we heard this, there aren't minutes of the meeting, but that apparently he caught a you know, his, some, his special strike force on the mushrooms and uh, and we heard a rumor is, we heard a rumor that they were going they were actually doing. Going to do something about magic magic, they're going to actually try to change the law. So we wrote to them and said, Look, by the way, you know you will know that you're not allowed to change the law without consulting us because the law, the Misuse of Drugs Act, says the government must consult with the ACMD. And we wrote to him and um, and then uh, nothing happened. About two weeks later, they wrote back and said, Okay, well, there's a debate in Parliament on Thursday. We want you to do a harm assessment by then. We said, Well, it's Monday yeah. and <laughs> we can't do it. I mean, that's an insult and so mm. it's tough. But they complied with the law in that they, they told it. they consulted us, and they said it was our fault that we didn't come back with an instant oh, wow. reply. And then they banned it. And they, <laughs> so they took mushrooms, which were legal, and put them in Class A. Oh, Why are in Class A? Well, because small psychedelics in Class A. Why are they in Class A? For the same reasons we've been going on already. It's the historical enmity to... Uh, I mean, completely. And then you have absurd things. You had police forces saying, "Right, we're going to crack down. We're going to spray the fields with <laughs> <laughs> chemicals to kill the mushrooms." You think, "Well, hang on." If you do that, you <laughs> affect the soil well, and the right. and the things you're going to spray don't kill mushrooms anyway. They yeah, just yeah, kill the yeah. grass. And- yeah. I mean, it was absolutely completely ridiculous.
0: Wow, what a scandal! Hey
1: outrageous, outrageous. And it, it was all, well, we're, gonna, we're tougher on drugs yeah. than the Tories. Yeah. And, that's happen- and that's still going on today. Why don't we have legal cannabis in this country? Hmm. Because neither of neither of the two main parties is quite sure how that's going to go with the, the right-wing press in terms of the election. Hmm. Uh, it would be really nice if they just said, look, guys, let's agree and take it out of the equation. I think drug laws should be taken out of the equation. Yeah. I think... The problem we have is that there aren't very many levers that governments have to get traction with voters. I mean, when you think about it, um, interest rates that we're taking out, you know, given to the Bank of England, you know, and uh, fiscal policy has also got an independent group that actually oversees it. The only the, uh, drugs are about the only sort of moral behaviour that can be controlled or used to, to to get political advantage, and so neither side is. Prepared to give up that possibility of, of stepping out of line and then being vilified by the right wing press, but if both sides agreed, it could happen. I, I think drug. You know, we should have a, an independent yeah. committee. that used to be called the Advisory Council on the of Drugs. It arbitrated on drug on drugs, and up till about ten years ago, the government used to do what the ACMD said. Yeah. But then, particularly starting with, with Blair, but also then with Brown and Cameron, they decided that they could use drugs. To try to gain political advantage. We should, drug, drug policy should be taken out of the Department of Health, it should, and it should be given to an independent committee that sits with, sorry, it should be taken out of the Home Office, yeah. where it is at present, because, you know, which is basically, you know, the Home Office's role in life is to say no, and to imprison people, or send them to Rwanda. And then it should be given to the Department of Health with an independent committee that says, really, what the harms of drugs are, and, and you know, basically have, a, have a, a misuse of drugs act, which actually is honest, to the relative harms and that would serve an enormously important function because it means you could then if you tell the truth to people they might listen because yeah. everyone knows everyone's lying about drugs so so harms emerge because no you know when occasionally the truth is told no one believes it mm. it's crying wolf isn't it it is uh,
0: there is a trend that i'm certainly uh, uh privy to of people who are quote unquote healthy i.e they don't have a diagnosis yeah. of mental health disorders whether it be anxiety or depression, taking psychedelics in various doses, some people microdosing, some people taking larger doses or hero doses, um, for the, uh, the, the sort of health optimization effects. Yeah, yeah. Are there any benefits of people who don't have a diagnosis taking these substances for the benefit of their mood, their creativity, uh, and other sort of uh, spillover effects?
1: So what we can say is that there aren't any systematic studies because it's virtually impossible to do because these drugs are all illegal. Mm. I mean, let me give an example of the absurdity of the law. Six years ago, we got ethical permission to do a microdosing study with LSD at Imperial College. But the ethics committee said the drug has to be given in hospital and they have to stay in hospital for 12 hours. Twelve hours. And we said, well, but it's it's a microdose. And they say, Yeah, but the half life of LSD is eight hours, so you've got to save two half-lives. And we said, But that's pointless because they're not having it, you know, They said, You have to do it. And we couldn't afford to do it. Because, you know, I mean, buying hospital space for twelve hours for every I mean, so we just couldn't do it. I mean, again, a, a bonkers decision. Completely. I wouldn't mind administering a hospital so that they, you know, wouldn't have a hundred tablets they go, but but to, I mean, and that just that just shows you why the research hasn't been done because the because the law the scheduling really precludes it. But what we know is that a lot of people do microdose, and they find it. You know, often they report that it's, it's effective. It, it improves their mood. It, you know, improves their creativity. But we can't absolutely say that it does. We've tried to test that. we we did probably the closest you could do to a, a double-blind study, uh, where we train people to. To blind themselves by giving them two to sort of color-coded envelopes and teaching them how to mix them up, and then we we, we knew what was in each. And we found there that you, if you thought you were taking a microdose, it definitely improved your uh, performance and your mood. Okay. But that's because you thought you were taking it. If, if it was placebo, it would ju- it, you did just as well as if it was the active drug. But then, if you thought you were taking placebo, you didn't do so well. So, so there is an expectation effect. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that actually disproves. I, I'm actually relatively sympathetic to the idea that, that micro doses or mini, or mini doses, mm-hmm. doses that you just perceive, I think they might be, therapeutic. I mean, they might be helpful in many ways. I, so I wouldn't say they don't work, but I'm just saying we can't prove they work. Uh, then at the other end, what about a macrodose, yeah. you know, a dose? Well, the first thing I would say is that there is absolutely zero evidence that megadoses work. So, just as a clear harm reduction message, we now know from good scientific research, going above 25 milligrams uh, of magic mushroom, psilocybin, or 150 micrograms of LSD, just adds harm. It it adds side effects. It doesn't give you any better psychological outcomes. So, so mega dosing, don't do. But a TRIP, what about a TRIP? Does a TRIP improve things? Well, one of the reasons we started doing work in depression was because we noted in our healthy volunteers who were we given psilocybin in a, in a scanner. You've got your head in a washing machine for 90 minutes. They come out and they still say, wow, not that was not only interesting, but, but I'm more in the world. Wow, we've got these wonderful descriptions for some of our, our volunteers, you know, how they, they could see colors differently and, and they could, they were much more in touch with other people. They were much more in touch with nature. And, th- and that is absolutely consistent finding. The people that volunteer for our studies and have a trip, they definitely do have well-being benefits which last for weeks and months afterwards. Even though they're not, you know, they're just normal healthy people.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Weeks and months afterwards, do we have any indication of how long those well-being effects might persist for?
1: Mostly, they wear off over a few months. Okay. One of the really interesting things we've discovered you, is 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 you can actually improve color blindness with psychedelics yes wow. and uh, and often that it, that effect lasts quite a long time and, and real, real scientists say well that's rubbish because color blindness is in the retina it's all to do with the cones and mutations of the cone genetics and i say the truth is and this 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 started from a, 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 someone just writing to me he said i thought you know you're working on psychedelics would you be interested in this example of mine and i said what was it he said well, I, I'm, you know, I've got a particular kind of um, colorblind. It's quite a rare one. He said, um, my brother was, is, a, is a great art fan, and he's dragging me around these galleries all the time, and all I just see is just a sea of green and brown. And, and he said, well, one day, I took, he gave me some psilocybin, and he said, and I suddenly saw this very famous picture by Monet, I think, of the um, Santa Maggiore in Venice. And he said, I suddenly, I suddenly saw it. I suddenly understood what he was talking about because I could see all the colours. And he said, I just kind of cried for an hour because I understood. And people say, well, that can't be right. And of course it's right. Because you see, so we did as a result of him and someone else writing to me, we, we put a a questionnaire into the global drug survey that comes out every year, about four years ago, put a questionnaire, are you colorblind? Have you taken psychedelics? Have they helped your colour vision? And we got about 50 responses. And about half of them said yes. And a few of them said it goes on for a very long time. And shall I tell you why I think it works? Uh And I think it's part of this, it's an example of this efficiency of the brain. I think for most of us, unless we're artists and we work with colour, for most of us, colour is not central. Mm -hmm. You know, know, we've been talking for an hour, right? But mostly your eyes are important, what you said is important. Those are the two things. I mean, you know, the fact you're wearing a, you know, I probably won't even remember it in an hour what color shirt you were wearing, yeah. because it's not important to me. And the brain downplays color because yeah. in the modern world, color isn't a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were you know, living in the jungle and looking for different fruits, color would be important. Yeah. But we've kind of, we don't need color in our life because it's more about facts and, and language. Uh, and that's suppression. We know that most of what your brain does actually is suppress things. It stops things happening in order to be very efficient for the things that are happening. And I think we suppress color vision and that's liberated by psychedelics because we we break down the suppression process in the same way as we break down the the processes which kind of drive negative thinking.
0: You were talking at the start about breaking these thought loops uh, that people find themselves in and I've heard a lot of people describe psychedelics as a shortcut to improving those short, uh, those um, those thought loops, and you know we can get potentially similar uh, results from intensive therapy and other modalities of you know um, uh, CBT etc. Do you buy into that, or do you think there is something unique about what psychedelics can actually do that produces the effect that we see in those that are responding well to the substances?
1: So I can yeah. I'll just say a few, a few important things to say about. It. I'll just give you a, a, a another quite entertaining anecdote. So we published our the first, the first paper that showed what psychedelics did in the brain uh-huh. in twenty twelve, and uh, and about a few days later, a guy called Jud Brewer from Yale emailed me. He said, David, why haven't you cited our paper on transcendental meditation? And I said because I didn't know what about your paper, <laughs> and why would I? And he said, because it shows exactly the same thing. It shows, look, I tra- and he sent me the paper, and Transcend, if you can get to Transcend, and they did several kinds of meditators, if you get Transcend, uh-huh. you switch off the default mode network. I said, that is amazing. And then we started talking about it. And in fact, so then and the joke was going around, you know, you can basically you can get to nirvana in two ways. You know, you can either spend fifteen years on a hill in India, (laughs) or you can take (laughs) fifteen seconds on psilocybin. And in fact the Hopkins group, John Hopkins group, then went on and did a really clever study. They said, Well, we got these people trying to learn to meditate, because it's actually most people fail to get to a point where they can transcend. It just takes too long, too difficult. So they started. They gave people um, psilocybin to facilitate acquisition of um, of meditation, and it worked.
0: It does. It does work. So that's the first thing to say.
1: You could, there, there's no question. In fact, what is really interesting, also, just sorry, as a bit of an aside, is that now the meditating fraternity, or the people who are interested in the science of meditation, they're looking. One of the areas of the brain that was really dramatically dampened down by psilocybin is called, called the posterior cingulate cortex. Is the part of the brain which integrates all your senses, mm-hmm. your sense of vision and hearing and touch and proprioception where you are. And that's really important. If you want to sort of lose yourself, you have to switch that off. Psychedelics switch it off. Now that now the, 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 um, the transcendental meditation people they're using uh, magnetic stimulation to switch it off to help people. Get into that meditative state, better. Huh. Ha! Which is get that kind of you know, it shows that it, you know that there are the circuits are, are the same. But then, what about other forms of therapy? Now, what was quite compelling about our depression studies, it, especially the first one, treatment-resistant depression. Almost all those patients had failed on CBT, and they hate CBT because they say, "I do CBT." I keep, they keep telling me to do these things, do these things, do these things, and I fail, and that just adds to my burden of guilt because mm-hmm. I can't even do CBT, which should be curing me. Mm-hmm. So, um, th- but what I don't know, so CBT doesn't produce the same. C- CBT doesn't isn't a transcendental sure. experience, but it is possible that after a psychedelic trip, you might be able to do CBT. And we kind of see that with other antidepressants. we often find that depressed people are too depressed to do CBT, but even ordinary antidepressants can put, lift their mood enough, so they've got enough concentration to do it. But I suspect, in, I suspect CBT is not going to be the best form of therapy after psychedelics. I think other, you know, more uh, forms of psychotherapy, which more deal with the person and the past, and uh, we use acceptance commitment therapy. Um, other people use mindfulness therapy, which I think fits quite well with the transcendental stuff. Um, but I'm, also, I'm actually genuinely quite... I mean, th- to my mind, this is the, the big unknown. We can get people well. And of the people we get well, some stay well for a very long time. But the majority, the depression creeps back over three months, six months. Particularly people who've been depressed for decades. And the, the real challenge now is to how to keep those people well. And one option is, well, we just give them another trip every six months. But well, that is really, really difficult because, of course, the drugs are illegal. And yes. Some of our patients go to Holland because they can't get it here. Uh, and we can't raise money to, to give it to them. But, but then another approach is to say, well, you know, maybe would a microdose work? Mm. Would a microdose keep you well? And I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that. There's actually a, a microdosing study for depression going on in Australia at present. That will be the first one. So that'll be very interesting to see how that pans out. What are they using? They're using psilocybin.
0: Psilocybin, okay.
1: And is it once
0: a day or once every other day that they're using this microdose? I am not sure. I, I think it's daily, but I'm not sure. Interesting. In terms of how far away you think we are for this being first-line therapy for someone like myself as a general practitioner yeah. being able to prescribe psychedelics, whether it's micro or macrodosing or whether it needs to go to a centre. If you could guess how many years away we are
1: to that point, if at all. Oh, it will come. It will have to come because it's too good and too important and too necessary. Huh. Um, very interesting question about how you might use it in primary care. So our current model is that this can invigorate psychiatry. Mm. I'm finding that young psychiatrists are really enthused because they, at last, Mm. we've got a treatment that works, it works quickly, and it's new. Mm. And and we can do therapy as well as give drugs, which is what psychiatrists are supposed to do, and most psychiatrists want to do. So I'm envisaging that what I really would like, I would like every ECT suite in Britain to be turned over to a psychedelic suite. That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And that would be the place where people would go. But then in time, you know, I think GPs like yourself who had an interest in this, there is no reason why it couldn't be done in general practice, yeah. you know, provided you have the space and you have the expertise and you have, you know, I think a therapist to work with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think in Canada, um, these clinics are becoming popular, I think with ketamine first off with the appropriate practitioners. Um uh, but there is a, a burgeoning interest in, in other psychedelics with the support network required to ensure people are having a safe experience.
1: Well, I don't have any doubt that GPs can do that. Yeah, I, mean, I really don't. Mm. And uh, and yeah, in some ways, GPs, you know, uh, you know, you're know you particularly um, able to understand the whole, you know, you're, you're, you're holistic doctors mm. even more than psychiatrists are. So I, w- I would think if you're interested, that would be an exciting thing to try to take forward. Yeah. Um, the, the there, is this, there is an interesting problem in Canada, though. Okay. I want to share this with you because this, yeah. this actually sh- this highlights the absurdity of the regulations. Uh-huh. So, Canada has a compassionate access program for psilocybin. Right. So, if you are if you've got serious mental illness or if you've got terminal illness, you can apply to have psilocybin therapy. All oh, right, But it's very hard to get. So there are, in Canada, you by law, a depressed person can apply to be euthanized. And that has to be enforced. Wow. But a depressed patient can apply for psilocybin and can be denied it on the grounds that it's too dangerous. And that kind of, that does rather sum up a rather absurd logic, doesn't it? The yeah, law, the law there is very much that.
0: Wow, so you can, you can, you be euthanized, but you can't.
1: You can't. Act, you you have no. You cannot. You can be denied psilocybin. Wow. This. It's just an interesting. There are other. I'm seeing more and more people who are cases of people being euthanized for mental illnesses, and I'm thinking. You know, really, I, you know, at the, the very least. They should be given an option. You can't force them to have psychedelics. Yeah, totally. At least you should give them an option.
0: Absolutely. Wow, that's sad. I'm sure we'd have to you know, we'd have to uh, completely change our thought process around that. Uh, when you were talking, before I forget actually, um, at the start about the connections between different areas of the brain, I wonder if you've come across any researchers doing work in uh, dementia. Um, uh, is this another area where psychedelics potentially could have a role?
1: Oh, absolutely, potentially, but it's it's. it's, it's like, we're not going to give demented people trips because uh-huh. they could be quite disturbing to them, and also Can actually imagine? they, it's it's very intellectually it's unlikely to be helpful. But the but the, there are the, one of the other aspects of psychedelics is that they're anti-inflammatory, mm. and they might dampen down brain inflammation. As mm. In fact, so my group were involved in a study at Northwick Park about five years ago where they took. To elderly people with what's called age-related memory impairment, so they were not their memories were going in. And there they did microdosing in hospital, I think twice a week for four weeks, and looked to see whether their cognition got better. Actually it didn't. But that might be because what four weeks in a lifetime, right? you know, it might be you have to give four years in Yeah. But what was interesting was that their mood improved. Even twice a week for four weeks, LSD improved mood in elderly people. We clearly want to do Some kind of low dose, mini dose, or micro dose study over a long period to see if it can help. Impossible under the current regulations. Mm. Mm. And that's impossible everywhere in the country and everywhere in the world. I mean, every country in the world still signs up to the UN conventions which say that psilocybin and LSD are Schedule 1 dangerous drugs. We're trying to change it, we're trying to get the WHO to change because there's such a lot of evidence that um, psilocybin is a medicine. The Australian decision really gives it quite a lot of, of traction to that. Yeah, But no country's actually changed the law yeah. here. Yeah. It's not a medicine anywhere. Hmm.
0: It's getting a lot of attention, uh, particularly amongst very wealthy individuals who have the capital to sway political mm. movements. Mm. You know, it seems like every other week you have some billionaire donating tens of millions of dollars yes. into research. All to America. All to America. That's yeah, what
1: grieves me. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> we need some of the local billionaires here to to give you some uh, some grant Yeah, clearly, I'm
1: very easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> dot, not yeah.
0: Um, on the subject of uh, uh, no and low alcohol, I'm a big proponent of being mindful about drinking habits
1: and stuff. I wanted to ask you about Centura. Could I, could I just yeah? Could I just finish off that one yeah. about, about the? About the rich people. Of course, yeah, go for it. Because <laughs> this, is, this is... So, philanthropy has driven almost all the research in the last 20 years mm. in psychedelics, largely funded by very rich uh, Americans. Uh, what is really interesting is what is happening as we speak in Australia. From the 1st of July psilocybin has been approved as a medicine for treatment-resistant depression uh-huh. and MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD and I, you say well how can that be There's it's, it's got a lot of license in fact it been the medicines have been given a license even though a drug company has not is not selling it there and that is because a charity called Mind Medicine Australia has guaranteed it will provide the medicine, medical quality, medical grade mm-hmm. of those two drugs. It'll import that into us. It will provide the medicine for doctors. Wow! And that is a massive breakthrough because that is you know if other, if other philanthropists would do the same, we could, you know, we could have we could have it here mm. pretty much. It's, it, once if the regulations changed, we could and the charities provided it. We don't have to wait for for years or, or maybe ever. I mean, currently, medicines only get licensed when a drug company decides it can make money mm. out of selling it. Mm. And that's actually shouldn't be the sole determinant yeah. of whether something's a medicine or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you see a bit of a land grab happening with regards to pharmaceutical companies trying to claim patents on no. particular compounds that you're using? I think pharmaceutical
1: or? companies are just... I think the big pharma don't want to be in this space.
0: Okay. And the, and the little
1: pharma who are in the space, I'm not sure they've got enough resources to, to get through. The regulatory system for drugs is so complex and expensive. I mean, it, it can take a billion dollars mm. to get a drug on the market. Yeah, None of the psychedelic companies have got a billion dollars. Mm. Most of them have only got a few million dollars. So my fear is that the current model... Drug development will destroy this field, and that's why I'm really keen. And I've been encouraging the Australians to do what they're doing. Yeah. This is a different model. This is a philanthropic model. Yeah. And uh, it's the same drug, and it's the same doctors. It'll work the same. way
0: Yeah, that's epic. That's really cool. Let's talk about Centura. I'd love so, to Centia. know a bit more. Yeah, Centia. Sorry, yeah. sorry. T- tell us a bit about how you got involved in that, and uh, nice. I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah,
1: we'll get you to the standard. Yeah, one yeah. One. Um, so I have, like every doctor, like you. From the very first day I started in medicine, I have been confronted with people with alcohol problems. Uh-huh. And I was very interested in alcohol because my, I did during my PhD, I discovered an alcohol antidote. I can I actually could sober up a drunk rat on the bench. And I ran into my professor and I said, we got a Nobel prize here. Yeah. I've got an alcohol antidote. And he said, what's the good of that? And I thought, I thought, uh, well, you could drive home safely. You, you might even remember who you slept with. <laughs> and he said, Yeah, but it'll still rot your liver and your brain and your heart, won't it? So, as you probably guessed, I haven't had a Nobel Prize. I? No. <laughs> but I, I spent a lot of my life working on alcohol, on alcohol treatments, on anti-craving treatments, on new treatments for withdrawal. Uh-huh. For the first 25 years, a lot of my research was centred on that. I used to run the alcohol research ward in NIH in America. Oh, wow. Trying to, trying to find new treatments. And then in 2004, I was, when I was in favour with the government, I was on the foresight team that was looking at drugs of the future. Uh-huh. And we had a year of brainstorming. And during one of those brainstorms, it sort of came to me that you can never fight, you could never deal with all the problems of alcohol. You can never deal with the toxicity and the addiction and the withdrawal. With different drugs, you can't do that. And I said, well, hang on, why don't we just replace it? And so I spent the last 20 years nearly trying to find replacements. And the first success is this botanical drug called Centia, which is actually a drink. Uh It's a drink with about 11 herbs. And these herbs are designed to mimic what a low dose of alcohol, a glass of wine, does in the brain. Okay, It's targeting the GABA system in the brain, which is where alcohol targets. Uh, but it only targets that. The problem with alcohol is the first glass is GABA, the next glass is dopamine, the third one is endorphins, the fourth one's glutamate, and then it, your brain's completely out of kilter. Mm. We just target GABA, we have a, a ceiling effect. So you can get chilled, you get relaxed, you can be sociable, but uh, don't run into those big problems that alcohol produces.
0: Can you? Operate a car on Sentier? Can you? Yeah, we, we recommend.
1: We, we recommend anyone who's got some slight alteration in how they feel. We, we don't. We we can't. You know, I can't say it's going to be dangerous, but I'm saying uh, we recommend people don't. This is not a way of of avoiding uh, responsibility. Sure, sure. But um, but the effects the effects are moderate and they're not that long lasting as well. We've designed it so that you know within about 35, 45 minutes mm-hmm. it's washed out.
0: Fascinating. Do you think there's going to be more products like this coming on the onto the well, market? Well, we're not the only
1: ones. Now there are two other companies out there selling what we call functional drinks. Okay. They don't work in the same way as ours, um, uh, but they, they they do produce uh, an action in the brain. Um, uh, and I don't think they taste as good as ours either. That's a, that's a <laughs> yeah. No, my big ambition. My big ambition is way beyond this. Is my big and is to invent a small molecule. is a small molecule, uh-huh. but it's very non-selective. I want to invent a slightly bigger molecule that is very selective and just does the good things of alcohol. Mm. Now, we've got three prototypes and we're in the process. We're going, all we've got to do now is raise a lot of money mm. because to take a small molecule through food safety testing to get it to be an ingredient in drinks is going to cost many millions of pounds. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we are at present. But we've, we've made them. We're testing them. At least one has worked very well, I just, but it's quite expensive to make. I'm seeing how I can find some slightly less expensive alternatives. But I reckon in three three to four years, we will have achieved that goal. And then we can offer an ingredient we call alcohol. Alcohol to alcohol is like candorel to sugar. All the goodness oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and we can offer that to any drinks company. So drink companies can make any drink they like, mocktails or put it into beers or non-alcoholic wines. Yeah. So you can have the pleasure of a small amount of alcohol without without the parts.
0: amazing well uh, i'm going to introduce you to one of my mixologist friends who's a specialist in low and no alcohol okay she um, she consults with the big brands you know diageos and all yep. the like and yep. creates new uh, new uh, cocktails for them so she'd be really interested if she hasn't already heard of sentia so i'll make sure to to get her a bottle when's this going out this is going to go out i'm not too sure in the next couple of weeks probably
1: well i can tell you now then yeah we got s- silver awards this week, in, in from the, the food from in the, the um, international, yeah, international brilliant non alcoholic drinks, uh, um, well, the international drinks festival, but in the non the alcohol brand,
0: amazing, amazing. She's it. probably well aware of it then, because she, she does judging for a lot of these events, I mean, and she, she could, may have even, well, might that, have that, even been introduced the me. I'd like to say thanks. Oh, absolutely, I will do, I will do. Prof, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, your work, your energy. This is absolutely wonderful and I'm super excited about the future of psychedelics and uh, non-alcohol drinks as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the doctorskitchen.com website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time.